Hello, this is Shelley Menelisino. And Mitchell Belgian for The Deciding Mind. We're here in New York City interviewing... Dr. Rachel Yehuda. So is this an annual meeting? So is that yes, right? Yes, the uh, ISPNE, okay, as we'll we call it, it uh, meets yearly, and this is the 42nd annual meeting. It's an international society? It's an international society. It was in New York this year. Yes, it was particularly meaningful to be discussing issues about stress and resilience on 9-11 with a community of scientists to talk about what the scientific contributions have been to our understanding of the effects of trauma. Our understanding of the mechanisms associated with how people respond to stress has really grown tremendously over the last few years. There have always been people that are interested in the stress response, but after 9-11, I think it became a real urgency to understand how the events that occur in everyday life that are traumatic uh, affect individuals and populations, and who's particularly at risk for having long-term effects and who might recover. We're a mix of scientists, molecular biologists, endocrinologists, clinicians, quite an eclectic group. There are quite a large number of postdoctoral students yes, as well we as very that. senior people here. Yes, yeah, a lovely group of people. The field of stress used to focus on primarily stress hormones that were released by the adrenal glands and then a little bit on the neurotransmitter or brain mechanisms that controlled the release of hormones. But we now know that there are a lot of things that you can look at to understand the mechanisms involved in stress. You can look at the genes that control the proteins that are made that allow the reactions that make the certain populations that genetically have heightened risk, is that right? So so we now know that not only are the hormonal responses to stress important, but there are all sorts of brain mechanisms and molecular mechanisms that control why people respond differently to stress, including even what your genotype is. So some people may be genetically more susceptible to effects of stress For other people, the environment itself or the stressful exposures can modify their genes and change the blueprint. Right, the epigenetics. The epigenetics, so that their genes are expressed differently and proteins are made differently. And this can result in really a very wide range of differences in the hormonal and biological response to stress. And that's what we've been talking about for the last few days here. You know, something I I was heard that I never heard as a clinician is the low birth weight issue. Yes. So so not just premature babies, but simply babies who are, I, I guess the research was like 5 pounds versus 8 pounds at, at the time of birth, that there's actually a, a likelihood that there's more stress. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely. We even published a paper on mothers who gave birth after 9-11 who were exposed to the World Trade Center collapse while pregnant and we found that their babies were a little bit shorter than average. So this idea about stress during pregnancy as a programmer of stress responses in the offspring um, has really gotten a lot of attention and been the subject of a lot of research, particularly in the last decade. Hmm. And so it's very important because... 
We have to take care of women during pregnancy oh. a, a lot more than we've ever imagined. I, I think that's true. It's I mean, it's really not true. really out in the world. You don't hear that. The women that were exposed with 9-11, pregnant women, did you say it was the tr third trimester that the risk was highest or if they had PTSD? Yes, the, the, the risk was highest in the end of the second and third trimester for biologic changes in the mother that were also present in the offspring. Um, and this is because of the biology that was reviewed in detail in this meeting. Yes, um, that some has, of which we understood. Okay. It has to do with the fact that there's a placental barrier that really shields the fetus from a lot of stress exposures, but can be overwhelmed if the exposures exceed the capacity of the barrier. And then that impacts negatively on... The, the fetus, is that right? You know, I wouldn't say negatively. Okay. The way that I would say it is that what developmental programming is all about is a way for changes to be transmitted to the offspring that might be adaptive to them. So, for example, we've done a lot of work studying Holocaust survivors That's and That's how children. I, I know your work, actually. Yes, thank you. And Whereas the offspring may have certain kinds of adaptations that are not comfortable for them in their current lives, whereas they may feel that they have an exaggerated response to stress or those kinds of issues. When you really think about things from an evolutionary or adaptive or epigenetic perspective, the mothers of Holocaust offspring may have actually been preparing them for the same kind of adversity that they suffered. So, for example, a low birth weight baby may actually be somebody that will do better in times of starvation, like the mother had faced in the Holocaust. The problem is when there's a mismatch between what you've been prepared for and what your environment is. And so we're now seeing the effects of stress and issues associated with resilience in a completely different way there isn't really a hormonal or a biologic response that's good or bad, okay. per se. It's the context that makes it so. And it seems very reasonable for a pregnant mother who is under stress to transmit the biology of stress. Mm. Of the environment. Of the environment to the offspring. It's gift, really, in case mm -hmm. you need it. <laughs> in case you need it, let's adjust your stress response now. That is based on the idea that if the mother is under stress, there is a likelihood that the environmental challenges will continue in the offspring. If they don't, that's where you get the mismatch. But I saw that they, the same offspring have quite a much higher risk of high blood pressure at earlier ages. Is that right? Is that Again, things that may be adaptive under certain circumstances, but in a culture where there's plenty of calories to be had right, okay. and um, excess food could end up having very different outcomes. Uh -huh. We become maladaptive in the environment Potent that they face. They can potentially become malad. So, for example, if you feel that you react to the environment by being very afraid and nervous, that's appropriate when there's every reason to stay to, hidden, to stay hidden right, uh -huh. when there are predators. But in an environment where you're really free and you're really safe, feeling that there's danger everywhere is going to be enormously stressful and take a toll on you. Some of the results that I found that were interesting from the conference were this realization that the people who show 
effects of trauma immediately after an event aren't necessarily the ones who will develop PTSD later down the road. And that is something that um, the, we've just started to pay more attention to because a few years ago we would have said that the people who show the greatest responses at the time of the trauma are the ones that you really have to watch. Well, you do have to watch them, but you also have to consider the idea that for some people there's a progressive and incremental increase in their symptoms so that they try to be okay in the beginning, but either because the environment continues to re-trigger them or that other social or physical demands impinge on them, their stress response actually increases and you get an accumulated response so that weeks, months, or even years later, people can start to show a response from something that occurred much, much earlier in development or in their lives. And that's why this idea of searching for biomarkers for these kinds of responses is so important, and that's what we're talking about today. What is a biomarker? A biomarker is like a chemical or biological fingerprint of a disease process. So if you have a disease or disorder, like post-traumatic stress disorder, the question would be, is there something that you can measure in the blood or in the brain or in a, in a heart rate or something that would tell you that somebody has post-traumatic stress disorder? There are different kinds of biomarkers. Biomarkers for risk or vulnerability are very different from bio diagnostic biomarkers. And you mentioned heart rate, but that might be a very general biomarker. And so it's led to a very interesting discussion, as you heard um, quite a lot of people involved in it, about what kind of biologic measures are helpful. How are they helpful? How are they used? How should they be used? How should they not be used? And whether or not the field of medicine or mental health is comfortable using uh, biologic measures when it has exclusively relied on symptom measures. Mm -hmm. After 9-11, a big problem was that many of the firefighters and first responders did not seek any help because there was a culture of not admitting something was wrong, specifically and maybe particularly uh, psychological phenomena that they did not want to appear weak. Well, I have a little bit of a different view on that. Tell us. Um, I think they were busy. And I, I think too. that when people are busy and they got a job to do and they have Clean to up, cleaning up the they have to find bodies and body parts and they have a, a lot going on that you can put the symptoms at bay for a while. And I think that's what also happens to our soldiers in the military. They don't have time to have their symptoms and they have an adrenalinized body that helps them go forward until the task is completed. And I think it is a very important question that we need to ask about how much we want to interfere with that. And one of the things that I really was appalled about in the after, immediate aftermath of 9-11 were all these well-intentioned clinicians that ran to ground zero to help because they felt so helpless. Right. And we're really taking uh, people off of the job to talk to them while they were busy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that it was not a very coordinated response on the part of the mental health community. Um, I think that for non-first responders, it may have been more helpful <laughs> to have somebody to talk to because 
people that had been there working, bystanders um, watching, or people that lost loved ones, they, they weren't involved in this busyness of having to mm -hmm. restore order back into the city. But for people who actually had the job to do, it wasn't the right time. Weeks, you know, months, maybe years when later. When the cleanup was done. <laughs> right. I think people, first responders, did start to understand that uh, they weren't getting back to normal in the same way, that there were some issues. And then the question becomes, have we created an appropriate enough environment so that there is not a stigma associated with seeking help? And it is very, very important that we don't impose punishments on people that admit to having depression right. or anxiety um, and that we offer them full support in the workplace. It's a difficult issue because if somebody is having mental health symptoms and they're very depressed, do we want them to have access, for example, police officer, do we want them to have access to a gun? <laughs> right. But on the other hand, uh, we want people to really feel that they will be able to access help if they're not feeling well. It's a conversation that the, that the community really needs to have. Mm -hmm. So I think that the number one agenda item with respect to mental health for people who undergo trauma is just make sure that there are, are not adverse consequences associated with seeking help. People need to feel that this was a great idea. Why did they wait so long? Right. <laughs> and this changed my life. This turned my life around. And we try to do that with our returning soldiers. Um, and I think that it's very important, important who they get treated by. <laughs> well, I think it's important to create a culture where we understand that just like somebody who breaks their arm and needs to reset their bone wouldn't just say, eh, maybe tomorrow it'll fuse itself. You know, everybody knows that you get into a car or an ambulance, you go to the emergency room. Right. And you set that bone mm -hmm. in a cast. <laughs> and that is your best chance of having the use of your arm again. We really have to do the same thing in terms of severe mental symptoms. We have to say, hey, let me look at this. Let me see if I can get this treated. So I, I saw some of the data showed that the more exposure to traumatic events, the greater the risk of PTSD. True. Absolutely saw data like that today from um, many militaries. The more times you are deployed, the more exposures that you get. And even if you have a traumatic exposure um, during your first deployment or several traumatic exposures and you don't develop mental health symptoms, which many people do not, you lay down a risk factor so that the next time you have a combat exposure, you're just a little bit more vulnerable and just a little bit more vulnerable after that. And that is a very important finding, even though it's very logical. Right, and we think about that <laughs> in all other psychiatric In, in all other realms mm -hmm. of life, you know, the One straw loss, that another breaks loss. the camel's back. Well, it counters back. this concept that the more exposure you have, the stiffer you'll become, but it's not true. Well, that's it. So the other half of that is that people feel that once they've coped with something, if it doesn't kill me, it'll make me stronger. 
not necessarily true. It, it can be true. I think when you look at statistics, you have to be careful because statistics are telling you about what is true on average and not what is true specifically. That and will, that is another really important thing. That, that was going to lead to me to my last question yes. for you, which was this idea of sensitivity versus specificity. With a biomarker. Oh, with, with biomarkers. Yes. So that is the struggle. The struggle is that what if you develop a biomarker that is very general? What that means is that it might be detecting that something may be awry, but not giving you an exact description of what it is. For example, if you develop a fever, that would be a... It's a non-specific non marker. That's right. So that, but you certainly don't want to... It's a real either. thing. <laughs> right. And we're going to hear from uh, Dennis Charney shortly on resilience. And we were very interested in resilience training. Do you believe in that? To, a, to some extent, I do believe in it. I think that if you teach people how to look at things, they may actually take you up on it when the situation demands it. So I think addressing fears head-on is really important. Giving people skills about how to think about things is really important. And helping people understand how to access social support and optimism and all sorts of the qualities that we now know are associated with really positive outcomes is important. I think, though, we don't want to be too naive about it. There are some exposures, traumatic exposures, that really are difficult. My um, feeling has always been that you can be resilient while you have post-traumatic symptoms. Um, some people view being symptomatic as on the opposite spectrum of being resilient, and I don't think that that's true at all. I think that people struggle uh -huh. um, to be resilient in the face of symptoms, and they can really display characteristics of both things. It's an ongoing struggle to come back from trauma exposure. Sometimes it feels like a few steps forward, a few mm -hmm. steps back. But I think we don't want to give people an expectation that if they have symptoms, they are failing to be resilient. That's the part of resilience training that I would want to be really careful about. But I think that the important thing is for people not to say, I want to be my old self again. Hmm. You know, I want to be my old self again, too, <laughs> from 10 and 20 years ago. <laughs> and does it, the, it, the clock only goes in one direction. And you, you had said... What was her name, Marla? Marla Hansen. Right, yes. and she she thanked you for for teaching her that that was not her goal to be who she was before a trauma, but to rebuild, rebuild, embrace the transformation. See what you your eyes are in the front of your head; mm -hmm. they're not in the back of your head. So you can go online and look up more information about PTSD at ispne.org. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks.